I'm Brian Lawrence, your host here at No Jibber Jabber, sharing episode number nine with you. We've almost hit double digits and had a couple great guests. Um, this has really been a, an experiment for me, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. I'm incredibly grateful for the feedback that I've been getting and the support. And if, if at the end of the episode you have a minute and you could smash the like button, subscribe, share it with a friend, any and all of those, it'd be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much, and here we go. Hello, this is Brian Lawrence here with another episode of the No Jibber Jabber podcast. Very excited to have our national correspondent, our first one ever, Jeff Ochis from the great state of Texas. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing great, Brian, thanks. Weather here is fantastic and the barbecue is even better. What else could you ask for, my friend? So Texas, as of today, still one of the 50 United States, but uh, there seems to be some controversy about that. Tell us, you know, we, we've had some big lawsuits spearheaded by uh, the distinguished Kenny Paxton, the attorney general there in Texas. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, interesting. Uh, well, for your listeners, uh, I'm born and bred Californian, but I've lived in Texas for, gosh, 20 years. Where, where did you go to college, by the way? Uh, I went to the uh, fine University of California, Berkeley. Uh, yeah. I'm pleased to rep that. If anybody's watching, I got my, my flags in the background and everything. So, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a California Berkeley hippie. Um, and so, but I've lived here for 20 years, uh, first about 10 years in Houston. And for the last kind of 10 plus years, we've been uh, just north of Austin in Round Rock. And, uh, and so it, it provided some really interesting insight for me. Um, kind of weird to think that I have two Texan children. Um, but yes, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, the idea of don't mess with Texas, but apparently Texas thinks that they can mess with the elections of other states, in particular the four states that you alluded to in the lawsuit. Um, in case uh, people don't know, Ken Paxton is the current uh, attorney general of Texas. He was reelected. Uh, in 2018. Um, he's been under federal indictment for about five years uh, for securities fraud. Um, and in the last kind of four months or so, it's come out that um, he's been accused of aiding uh, a funder. Uh, a number of people in the state attorney general's office have either resigned or been fired. Um, a lot of people think there's more legal actions coming. So for whatever reason, he either doesn't understand the law or he doesn't think that it applies to him. Um, I think the idea behind the lawsuit that was released, I think it was without prejudice last Friday evening um, and was signed on by 126 House Republicans as well as a number of other state attorneys general. Um, I mean, the general consensus is that he did that if only to try to get in line for the um, uh, I can't think of what those machines are called where you go in there and you grab the dollars and you know, you've got 20 seconds to get whatever you can. Swirling that, around and yeah. That's I think the expectation of what it's gonna be like in the last 30 days of the White House with pardon. And the idea is that he might be trying to get a pardon and this was his attempt to curry favor. Yeah. Well, he also, uh, it, it, is he positioning himself for a gubernatorial run at some point because you, you know, that doesn't seem to slow hurt electoral prospects at this point. Um, and you also have the, the distinguished lieutenant governor 
of Texas who you know, can certainly help with any money problems that Ken Paxton or anyone else is having because he's offered $1 million uh, for anyone who brings forth voter fraud. Um, to, to date, has anyone, are, are you aware, has he paid anyone out or what's going on with that piece of it? Yeah, so you're talking about the illustrious Dan Patrick, not the former ESPN uh, uh, sports anchor, um, but he was talk radio host. And so apparently that does pay very well, even if you are um, more local. Right. Um, the answer to your question is the only person that I saw who uncovered uh, and reported an episode of voter fraud to try to claim that $1 million was the awesome Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania, Fetterman. Uh, he did it via Twitter, and it was a Republican registered voter who was trying to vote on behalf of his mother. That is the only one that I have heard of uh, that went to Dan Patrick, and as far as I know, he has not paid that out as Lieutenant Governor Federman requested uh, in gift cards. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't know that he's paid it out. Um, whether this is all a, 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 an effort either by Patrick or Paxton uh, to position themselves for a gubernatorial run. I don't know. Um, Craig Abbott is actually relatively popular here in the state of Texas. So it would be challenging for either one of them, uh, I think, to defeat him. Um, but you never know. Um, I mean, it's quite possible Ken Paxton could be running from behind bars, and but that doesn't necessarily make him less popular with certain parts of the Republican Party. It, it could also be Donald Trump's 2024 uh, campaign as well. So Absolutely could be. If there's any politician in America who I'd like to see have a million dollars in gift cards, it would have to be Lieutenant Governor, uh, Governor Fetterman of Pennsylvania. That, that man would know how to put it to good use. Uh, and as a final question, Jeff, let me ask you, there on the ground in Texas, uh, you know, we keep talking in 2016 uh, with Hillary Clinton, 2018 with Beto O'Rourke, 2020 with Joe Biden, that is this going to be the year that, that Texas turns blue? Um, and it hasn't quite happened. Are we getting closer? Why is it not happening? What, what needs to be done? That's a great question. Uh, it's one that a lot of people are diving into data with respect to you know, what happened in 2020, not just in Texas, but in, in all of the various states where the polling was off dramatically. Um, for your listeners, I believe the last uh, Democratic politician who won statewide in Texas was Governor Ann Richards. Uh, and that was back, I want to say in 92, but please don't quote me on that. It might have been a little bit later. So it's been a long time. Uh, I did a little bit of research, um, which, you know, since we know each other, you might be a little surprised. Me doing my homework. <laughs> um, in 2016, uh, Trump won over Hillary by approximately nine points. That decreased to about 5.5 points in 2020. Now, Beto's big take when he ran for Senate in 2018 was Texas isn't necessarily a Republican state versus a Democratic state. It's more of a non-voting state. So he and a number of other groups in the state have spent a lot of time and effort getting um, voters registered, in particular in, in Democratic areas. And from everything I saw, that did have a, a significant impact in the number of voters in general. Um, so as a point of perspective, um, Hillary Clinton got about 3.9 million votes in 2016. Uh, Joe Biden got uh, over 5.2 million. I mean, that's a dramatic increase for the Democratic candidate. Um, 
it was only exceeded um, by the increase that Donald Trump had going from about 4.7 million to about 5.9 million. So the summary of that is um, a lot more Texans voted. They closed the gap between the uh, Republican and presidential candidates, not as quickly as some were um, predicting or maybe hoping is probably a better word for it. Uh, and so the big question is gonna be what happens now? Now, unfortunately, the predicted flip of the Texas ledge did not happen. So when they um, do the reapportionment of state house seats and congressional seats, um, it's not necessarily gonna be any better uh, for the Democrats now than it was um, during you know, the good old Carl, or, or, or during the good old Carl Rove days, where he would come in and help carve out seats. Yep. Right. Right. Um, but what it does mean is that it, it it still looks like it's coming, uh, but as a lot of people are now starting to say, um, oh my mind just blanked on that. Uh, the saying, what is it? Uh, demographics is destiny, and a lot of people now are realizing that demographic. Demographics is not necessarily destiny. It's still gonna take a lot of work to make it happen. Uh, and there were some places that people were very surprised actually increased um, their votes for Donald Trump in areas that were predominantly minority run um, or uh, habitated, I guess is a better word for it. In particular, the Rio Grande Valley actually saw um, his numbers increase where people are diving in trying to figure out why. Now, some of that is, um, what can really only be attributed to uh, voter suppression tactics. Um, uh, the governor was successful in limiting the number of drop-offs, drop-off locations in the state to one per county. Whether it's a county that has 10,000 citizens in Western Texas or one like Harris County, home of Houston that has over 4 million. Um, between that, between the pandemic, between uh, I'll just say the uniqueness of the Republican candidate. I don't know if we can really interpret this being a continuation of a trend or more of a, an outlier, uh, but we're going to see um, in 2022 when you know we go through this all again. Yeah. Well, so I think despite the best efforts of the Republican Party, we saw two million more uh, voters in the presidential election in Texas. So congratulations on that. And uh, hopefully we'll continue to narrow the gap. So Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Go Bears and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Brian. Go Bears to you and happy holidays to everybody. Happy holidays. Thanks, Jeff. In the future, this is where we'll have very, very lucrative commercials from one of my many, many sponsors. But for right now, you as an early adopter, you get to skip on over that. And we're going right to the next conversation with Katherine Baker. Here you go. Hi, everyone. I'm here with the honorable uh, former assemblywoman, Katherine Baker. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great and great to see you, Brian. Thank you for including me in conversation. And uh, from, from my living room, which is where I spend 20 hours of my day anymore <laughs> with all of our Christmas decorations. I hope you are doing well and that everyone in your life is staying healthy and safe these days. 
I am, and I promised you at some point the AirPod, one AirPod would fall out. So one did, but I still got another one. So I'm going to roll with that. So Good thank you. It. And it's been a big week for you. You just, uh, congratulations. You are just appointed to the Fair uh, Political Practices Committee. And I'm sure a lot of folks aren't super familiar with that. Can, can you share a little of what that is and what you're going to be doing in that role? Sure, the Fair Political Practices Commission or FPPC, uh, anyone who has ever served an elected or appointed or public office in California or run as a candidate would be a little more familiar with this, but our, our everyday civilian may not. Um, it is the uh, five person independent nonpartisan commission that's tasked with enforcing and overseeing the education and outreach about uh, government ethics and transparency in our government and accountability. And kind of break that down a little bit. They uh, really come from the Fair Political Practices, or excuse me, the PRA, the Political Reform Act that was passed in 1974, shortly after the Watergate experience our country had. I was just a little tiny thing. <laughs> I don't have a firsthand memory of it, but, uh, and the idea is to promote government ethics, uh, transparency in campaign finance and in lobbying activities, and to, to try to ensure there is not, there are not um, government representatives who are self-dealing with taxpayer resources, with campaign resources, or uh, that there are conflicts of interest between government service and an individual um, elected or appointed behavior. And it's a great work. They do outreach and training, um, and they try to be making sure that all candidates and lobbyists and officials know about their duties and obligations. And they also are an enforcing body. Uh, they actually have a team that enforces those provisions uh, through civil enforcement fines. Um, so it is a great honor. I've, I've practiced election law for probably about 16 years now and uh, almost entirely pro bono and loved the work. It was all towards transparency and accuracy in our elections. And so this is a little bit of a shift, but um, very much aligned with what I worked on the assembly. And I'm deeply honored to get to be one of the commissioners. Well, I think it's such an interesting time to be talking about it because we've just completed the most expensive presidential election in history. And you know, one of the things that, that shocks me is if you go back 20 years to the Bush versus Gore race, where um, George W. Bush did something that was very cutting edge at the time, which was he opted out of the federal matching funds because up until then, pretty much every candidate went ahead and they raised a certain amount of money and then that got matched. And so you had to have a certain number of donors um, and then that got matched with, with federal funds. And now, I mean, that, that notion is completely antiquated. What, what do you think about the role of money and um, how that's changed politics over the last couple of, of years or decades? Yeah, well, a few small points and then to the bigger yeah. point as well. On the small side, uh, the federal the Federal Elections Commission, FEC, is sort of the FPPC equivalent for federal elections. Just a little distinction that listeners right. may not know. Um, the commission that I've just joined is the California equivalent. And so actually it doesn't oversee federal regulations, but plenty at the state level. And there are campaign uh, spending thresholds and spending limits that candidates in California can opt into or not. And there, there are amazing loopholes about that, big surprise that tend to benefit the political parties. So for example, when I was a first time candidate in 2014, which seems like ancient history, uh, I had the option of, of agreeing to spending limits, which are a calculation of 
prior years, uh, the limit changes every cycle. Um, or I could decline that and decide to raise my own. If you agree to the spending limits, uh, as well as fundraising limits, you get to have a statement in your information brochure. So you know when you are uh, right. looking at that packet that's sent to you right before elections, and sometimes you see a candidate statement, and sometimes you don't. You might wonder to yourself, I heard this all the time, well, gee, this, this candidate didn't care enough to put in their statement. Well, you only get a statement if you agree to the spending limits. And the spending limits favor those who are likely to be funded by their political parties, because the one exception to the spending limits is when political parties spend on your behalf or give you money. So for example, a candidate could come in and agree to the spending limits saying that, oh, I'm gonna be, you know, not spend more than let's say it's $700,000, but that's actually not accurate because their party can come in and spend millions. And- Unlimited amounts, right? Yeah, and they get the benefit of the, the little statement that goes to every single voter. Anyway, I got a little esoteric there. Yep. It's one of the examples of loopholes um, that people don't know about. To your bigger question, uh, money and campaigns, it, it's always going to be there. It, it is part of our free speech and people will debate Citizens United and, and if there should be spending limits or just transparency. Uh, I experienced it very firsthand because my race in 2014 was the most expensive assembly race uh, in all of that election cycle between how everybody spent. There were about $9 million. Um, and I raised 700,000 of that. I was the, <laughs> I was the small spender in that one. Yep. So um, look, it's, it's here. I think the important thing is that there are pretty well established and rigorously enforced rules about transparency and that the information that's available to voters is accessible. It is not gobbledygook that you can't understand. And it's not filtered through someone else where they get to say, uh, make their own judgments about what's disclosed. And I think that to me has always been the better way of regulating um, the role of money in campaigns is as much transparency and timely as possible. Rules have it so that a lot of those provisions you don't get reported about till well after an election. Well, that doesn't do you very right. much transparency good. Anyway, I have my soapbox about those issues, but I've, I've been on the receiving end of the experience. Well, you went through not just one, but three of the most expensive assembly races in, in history. And you know, I'm, I'm presuming if they're the most expensive in California, they're among the most expensive probably ever in the United States. And yeah. even more expensive um, than some congressional races, um, depending on where in the country you're you're comparing. It's also an expensive media and communications market. But yes, yeah. Well, it, it's kind of a, it, it, incredibly expensive uh, media market, and then the fact that in California we have so few competitive districts um, on both the state. And the assembly, and so naturally the the money uh, gravitates to that. What is it like going through a, a campaign in such a and and I mean I imagine that from the day you won in 2014, you immediately then because you have a two year cycle and really it's nonstop campaigning. What is that like for you, and what sort of impact does that have as a legislator as well? Oh yeah, you know. Um... I probably would have worked just as hard had I been in a quote safe seat, not a swing seat, because I'm a compulsive overworker, overprepare, over everything. It's just kind of the, the way I am. But uh, I learned shortly after I was elected in 2014, 
probably 72 hours later, I started hearing this talk about, oh, you're going to be a target. You're a target. You're the number one bullseye on your back. And I, I thought, you know, I would be the, uh, I always have a, elections that required a lot of hard work and didn't really have this concept that is really lingo in Sacramento about targets and protects. And I learned pretty quickly that the whole infrastructure in the legislature that's not on paper is really about who are the targets on the other side and how do we you know, try to defeat them in everything we do legislatively and who are the people on our side that we try to protect. So I was typically, and this was not a function of my personality or relationships, it was just the, because I was a swing district. I typically was the number one target and the number one protect. And when that happens, a lot of money, outside money, you know, tries to get involved in races. There's very expensive independent expenditures. And, and so that's just a function that you see all around. We just saw it with the congressional races in Orange County the last two years. And I learned that you do start running for re-election almost immediately upon election in a swing seat. If you want to um, be elected again, you have to really work hard. The uh, experience I had, you asked me, what's it like in the legislature? that most demonstrated that was shortly after I was sworn in, another member who I'm not going to reveal um, came up to me, member of the other side and said, I don't envy you one bit. And I was like, really, this is a, this is a great honor to get to be involved in. And uh, what, what, what makes you say that? And this individual says, you're gonna have to work so hard, like 24 seven and and always have to be looking behind your back and everything else. And I don't have to do that. So I just don't envy you at all. And I joked, I said, well, gee, I'm a twin mom. You know, I always do things a little <laughs> bit harder or I, I worked hard to get here. But as the member walked away, I thought, you know, what is it like to think to yourself, I don't have to work that hard because I'm in a safe seat. And um, I don't, I think safe seats have their benefits, but um, I think one of the things that's going to be interesting is there should be more swing seats. <laughs> there should be more of it. I think it leads to people more open-minded about working with others and not get complacent in their seats. Do you think the, the open primary, so it used to be, it was the top Democrat and the top Republican who were facing off. And now with the open primary, which was passed under Governor Schwarzenegger, um, that it's the top two vote getters in the primary. And so you can have two Republicans or two Democrats. Um, although, you know, to date, currently it's still overwhelmingly incumbents are going to win, but for, you know, an open seat, you might have two Republicans or two Democrats. Do you think that changes the dynamic at all? Or does that not have much of an influence because incumbents are still so powerful in that scenario? Well, incumbents are still very powerful for sure. So, um, but I, I think we've had enough experience now with the top two to see that it can be a moderating effect. Um, it, it won't necessarily be because money will get involved, but I'll give you a couple of examples. So I think um, you'll find Reggie Jones-Sawyer is a, a member in Southern California. He's chair of the public safety committee. He's a member of the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, he was challenged by a member of his own party and it was a top two race. He barely um, made it out of the primary in March, if I remember the numbers correctly. This was a sitting assembly member and uh, millions of dollars were poured into that race down where he is. And um, a lot of big interests got involved, the police, 
and uh, state public safety officials and their unions got involved, as well as other sitting assembly members trying to protect their own multi-million dollar race. He ended up winning, but um, so it didn't change. I don't think it changed Reggie's voting record at all. I, I don't think it had an impact on him that way, uh, but it did make it a very expensive race. And I, I worked with um, assembly member Joan Sawyer on, on different issues. So in that respect, all it did is make a more expensive race, but it might've made someone, I don't know this, but when you, he was in a really safe district and that's kind of a wake up call sometimes for members that might be needing a little wake up call when you get a challenge like that and it's from your own party. Um, but that's, that's an example of also the incumbency will, will help you. Then you'll find other areas of the state where you might get a moderating impact um, I'm thinking of Senator Rubio down in Southern California. She's part of the uh, Rubio sisters. One is in the assembly, right. one is in the Senate. I admire both of them very much. When her seat became available, uh, that was another example of a choice between a potentially more moderate or independent minded Democrat and one that was considered much more party line or maybe more union interests. And a lot of money was put into that from outside forces to try to have the more centrist person and she ultimately won. So that does happen. And I think that's the impact of it now. It happens a little bit less in Republican seats because there are so few of them. I mean, yeah. there are so few of them. I think we now have 19 seats uh, out of 80 seats in the assembly. So it does have a moderating impact. Um, it can also have the impact of just throwing a lot of money into a race that had someone just maybe worked a little harder, they would have run anyway. Yeah. And uh, to that point, I mean, you were the, the last Republican legislator here in the Bay Area, and now it's entirely Democratic. And is that, you know, in your mind, it, and there hasn't been a Republican elected statewide in quite some time. Is that that the electorate in California has changed so much and in the Bay Area? Or do you think that it's a larger message for the Republican Party? What, what do you think the, the cause of that is? And how does the Republican Party return to, to relevance in California? Well, first, I think it's both in terms of how we got there. The electorate in California since the mid-90s has changed. And certainly in terms of uh, even our economy, you know, we're not a, as much a defense manufacturing or uh, economy is driven as we were 25 years ago when was the last time the, uh, the mix up in the assembly and the Senate was very, very close. I think Republicans had the majority for about nine months in, uh, in 1995 or so. But so that has happened. The party has definitely struggled and, and lost, lost registration and lost seats over that 25 year period with the exception of a few blips on the screen that I think are important. One was in 2014. Uh, in 2014, we picked up uh, assembly seats, all in swing districts. I think we picked up five or six seats, including the one that I had been in. And when I won in 2014, it was the first time a Republican had been elected anywhere in the Bay Area legislatively in eight years, but the first time a Republican flipped a Democratic seat in 30 years in the Bay Area. So it was a, it was a big year, but we did it elsewhere in the state. Um, so it's, there's some recent history of being able to pick up seats. Just this last election cycle, which was really a surprise to me, uh, demonstrated that the Republican Party, for as much as it's been on the downswing, uh, it still has pulse <laughs> in California. Yep. And I think we saw that in the outcome of the ballot initiatives and in the seats that were picked up, and that not a single assembly seat was lost 
in a presidential year. And I don't know if, you know, you may know this because you get into the data points, but most Californians don't know. In presidential years, Republicans have always lost assembly seats for the last 22 years, every single time, because there was higher turnout. And right. sadly, Republicans would lose when there was higher turnout. And this did not happen. So it's really quite extraordinary to find another time when we have not lost seats in the assembly um, in a presidential year. Of course, that didn't happen in the Senate. But so I think it's been both. It's the trajectory that the party has taken generally and California has changed. Um, and I, I also think that the most recent election has shown not only 2014, but uh, 2020, the party still has those who will share its principles. It's what we do going forward to bring people in and to deserve to govern. And, and one of the, you know, I think interesting parts of the election was the fact that it, it has been a little bit overshadowed that uh, with Joe Biden winning the election and yet the Republicans uh, picked up seats in the House, they had gains in other areas here in California, some of those seats that it flipped in 2018 have now flipped back. Um, and I, I guess part of me it feels like uh, considering that happened, it, it makes it harder to understand how people believe that there is this huge conspiracy that somehow Democrats had only, uh, they had the wherewithal to go ahead and plot this huge conspiracy to help Joe Biden get elected, but didn't bother with any of the down ballot races. Well, and that also Republican governors and secretaries of state right. were in on the conspiracy. So yes, it, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to believe. I, I'm not one of those conspiracy theorists. I've been vocal about that. And, um, and, in, and you know, I, I think every election, especially when with such an amazing turnout as we had in this last cycle, which is not just impressive in California, but the country will have issues. And, and some of it might be fraud. Some of it is, and I'd say 90% of it, is misapplication of the law, changing the rules as you go along. There are legitimate problems with those issues. And I hope that we will find a time when we take away the partisan uh, lens that we look through in the presidential election and look at, okay, what can we do better in elections generally? Both the good things we need to improve on and the, the things that are broken. Uh, but he won legitimately. And it, it just still continues to boggle my mind how many people in real positions of authority see it as a grand conspiracy. Um, and I don't think that's going to change necessarily. I'm not one of the conspiracy theorists, but and which this I is appreciate. Yeah, well, I've, I've practiced election law for yep. 16 years, as I mentioned, and most of that has been in the area of the casting of ballots protecting equal protection rights when it comes to your right to vote, increasing accessibility and fighting to ensure that votes are accurately counted and, and people are not disenfranchised. I have observed in seven or eight counties in California in different states from local races to presidential races and our system is not rigged with fraud. There are opportunities for it the unscrupulous can do it. And in close races, it makes a difference, but our system is, is one of the best in the world. Anyway, and you got me so on the soapbox on that I, one. No, which I appreciate um, because I think it is, I, I mean, it's the first time in history and, and where we've seen close elections before, um, but we've never seen anything quite like this where, um, and, and this is actually the, 
if you go back to 2000, the seventh out of eight times that the Republican uh, presidential candidate has gotten fewer uh, popular votes. And really, it's the Electoral College uh, that has allowed the Republican Party to have relevance on, on the presidential uh, side of it. What, what do you think is the disconnect there in terms of uh, the Republican Party messaging? What are, are there certain issues that um, rather than, you know, the cultural wars and things like that is the, you know, certainly the um, at a national level where you've seen attack on immigrants and things like that, that that's been counterweighted with changing demographics. Um, what do you think are the lessons for the Republican Party from from a bigger picture standpoint? Well, I think first and foremost, and I, I'm uh, I'm by no means an establishment Republican. I, I was uh, probably during my time in elected office in the assembly, I was the most critical of the president of any elected, I think, in California in my party for four or five years. So I, I'm not, I come at it from that lens, first of all. And I, I'm looking at the successes of the 2020 election and where we failed in the past. And there's no question to me that it is start with good people, good candidates running. Uh, there were excellent candidates who ran this cycle focused on their communities and the job that they are running for. And, and, and also hardworking candidates, that helps. That's not always the case. Sometimes you'll get candidates who are so ideological that, and they're only running on uh, one issue that does not jive with their community and that's, that's not gonna work. Um, so I, I look at that, recruit good candidates for sure and focus on the issues that matter in your district and earn the vote or deserve to govern your community. Um, easy for me to say because I'm currently a civilian and, and out of that, but I think it starts with recruiting good candidates. And then secondly, really focuses on the issues that most matter to everyday quality of life. And I'm going to push back a little bit on the idea that, you know, only Republicans are have a disconnect, maybe in California, but certainly not in other states. Um, this was a close election. And, and while I think uh, Biden, it was surprisingly close. I mean, I was going into election night expecting a dramatically different result uh, in a lot of races. And we have the narrowest Democratic majority, um, I think, is it in two decades uh, since they have this small, just a single digits majority? Um, totally didn't expect that. You had a lot of down tickets, split ticket races. Uh, look at the way Californians voted on some of the propositions, uh, Prop 15. Uh, Prop 19 and Prop 22, just by way of examples. So um, I think there's, depending on what state you're coming from, I know we're both in the Bay Area and California. Uh, I don't know that there's that kind of disconnect. Uh, there certainly has been in California and the turnaround comes from great candidates running and reflecting the issues that are most important to their communities and how they're going to improve lives. And I think that my colleagues in the Democratic Party with whom I've agreed on many things um, I'll have a real soul searching to do as well, not only in California, but nationally. I, and I agree on the national part because I think you know, many Republicans and Democrats were surprised that a historically unpopular president who um, you know, managed to contract COVID at a super spreader event at the White House right uh, weeks before the election on top of so many other things in terms of yeah. mishandling of the, the coronavirus, came down to just a handful of states that, you know, it narrowly had gone for Donald Trump in 
2016, and those same states narrowly went for Joe Biden, even though the popular vote was uh, very uh, decisive. The yeah. you know 306 electoral votes, it, it, it was just a handful of states. And so I think that's something that the Democratic Party does need to do some soul searching and, and wonder about. And the fact that huge, uh, and I think another interesting thing you, you said was the fact that um, you touched on earlier that traditionally in presidential election years, uh, that benefits Democrats. And uh, you know, Newt, Newt Gingrich was just quoted as talking about, we're in trouble if a lot of people vote, that's not good for Republicans. But in this election, a higher turn, you would have thought that this high turnout would have hugely benefited Democrats, but right. uh, there are a lot of Republican wins as well. Let me ask you closer to home. I've talked to some folks who I, I've asked them, you know, what do you read that? And they say there's there's a lot of, um, this is political consultant speak, but there's a lot of untapped, unmined votes in California. That's that's what they're looking at. They're saying, well, there are people who came out that show us there's opportunity. And um, so we'll see, you know, what happens from that. It's a, it's a very political analysis, but extraordinary that a high turnout election yielded such a close election. Um, I, I can't underscore enough if you ever, if you're not in the data points or Politico, that that's really very unusual. It's, and I, I often say to Republicans, I mean, if you're afraid of turnout and you want low turnout elections, something's wrong. That's <laughs> not a good, doing. that's not a good indication. No. Yeah. And let me ask a little bit closer to home here in terms of uh, Governor Newsom, who, you know, I, I think that early on in March and in April, I think that there was a lot of support for Governor Newsom in terms of uh, being very aggressive and the fact that California did not have the the huge spike that we saw, even though hit early here, that we saw in New York and New Jersey and some places like that. Um, but with this latest round of, of shutdowns and uh, gubernatorial orders that there seems to be more and more uh, anger towards Gavin Newsom. And then there's also anger, I think, towards the fact that people are just so frustrated that here we are nine months later and we're still in this pandemic. What are your thoughts about that and, and the job that Governor Newsom's done, which is not, it, you know, it's certainly not an easy job. It's not an easy job. I mean, in his time in office, he has not only had a global pandemic, uh, but the wildfires, wildfires, electricity shutdown, housing uh, policy that has not been fixed. I mean, let's face it. Uh, we also have some parts of the state that before the pandemic were still in double digit unemployment. Uh, you know, if you look at Imperial County, when other parts here in the Bay Area, it was maybe 3%, 3.2%. Uh, this was before uh, the pandemic. And uh, we, we still have a, a state that has many problems beforehand. I, I think, you know, look, it's easy when you're not the one having to make the tough decisions. It's just that there've been some really bad ones. You know, there was the, not only the French laundry, which was so incredibly um, disconnected from the everyday life of folks, we know that. But um, there's this, the big open business commission that had, I don't know, a hundred people on it. I, I represent and work with small businesses. We all are patrons of them in our local communities. They're not seeing any benefit to this commission that was supposed to help them. And when the commission had a report come out, the commission was, well, we should be really conscientious about small businesses and try to support them. It was that kind of work. And that's the kind of thing that frustrates people when they see EDD, the, that department, not only rife with fraud, but a complete inability to fix any of the problems. And, and no one really in the governor's office so far taking the reins and saying, 
I am going to fix this because it is unacceptable that it's happening in my time. Uh, when the DMV was completely unable not only to meet the appointment times that people needed, but accurately register people to vote, there was no leadership saying, all right, I'm taking this on and I'm going to fix this. I didn't cause the problem, but I'm going to try to fix this. And we just keep seeing that again and again. So that's even without a pandemic. Mm-hmm. On top of that, our schools and our kids not being able to go to school has been so terrible. I mean, I'm a parent of high school students going through their senior year in basically the same room, their bedroom every day, all day, and uh, seeing what what's happening there. So again, it's easy to pile on and criticize them, but there've been some really big missteps and a disconnect. And we were already there before the pandemic. I think it's been worse. Uh, he did so some great leadership in shutting things down in March when we really didn't know what we were dealing with. And that that did take some courage and I think it probably did help us, but um, it's been confusing all year, what, what to expect. So anytime you always want your elected leaders to more than just make a statement or a policy or just a vote up or down, you want them to lead, like roll up their sleeves and own it and fight for it. And we need that now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I come from a, a school background and, you know, have four kids in schools myself. And I think there's a huge frustration that, that kids are not back in, but it seems that a joint federal and state response to this would have gotten us so much further. And, and you know, I think too, and, and to me, it's not even a Republican versus Democrat uh, issue. It's just an issue of competence. And if we had had, you know, I think that, Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush, if a president had, had come forward in March or April and said, you know, our fellow Americans were faced with this enemy like we've never seen in our lifetime, and this is a unified national effort, we need to shut down, we need to wear masks, we need to invest in testing and roll that out. What, if we had had something like that, how different do you think this potentially would have been? And would that have helped the states? Because it seems like that, that is a huge miss and probably, I, I think that that's probably gonna be Donald Trump's greatest legacy. I think you're right there for sure. I mean, um, from everything I've read and studies that have been done on this, and I'm by no means, I'm not gonna to pretend to be an epidemiologist or even someone who can work with statistics very well, but I, I can tell you, I've, I've read, as I'm sure you've seen, how many lives could have been saved had we done certain things earlier and had some consistency in leadership and messaging. And I couldn't agree with you more on the flaws at the federal level and the missed opportunity. And it wasn't just a missed opportunity where, okay, now we're gonna have housing costs that are higher or something else. People die and or have long lasting effects. So certainly difficult to see happen, but I'll, I'll offer the flip side of that as well. And it's a challenge that Governor Newsom has that hasn't quite been able to crack. Um, having just a, a federal, every one size fits all or federal takeover of it wasn't the solution either because there's parts of our state that we're seeing now that are so dramatically different than others. You have to have some amount of common sense and be nimble. And I would love to have seen more more leadership at both the state and federal level and help us find that special place that allows us to be nimble at a local level. And uh, hopefully we'll see a change in that. And look, I agree with the governor here. We're in the tunnel. We're still in the tunnel, but at right. least there's a light at the end of it. Yep. And, and I think um, 
and I will agree with you on that. And one of the things I appreciate is that uh, President-elect Biden has said uh, he, he's against uh, blanket shutdowns instead uh, looking at one, you know, this idea of 100 days of everyone wear a mask. And, you know, I think that when we look at, you know, outdoor dining, um, when I think there's some places that we've seen have done it really well, um, schools and having a focus on providing testing and getting schools back, um, that how much of a difference could that have possibly made? Because, you know, I think one of the huge pieces that we're only really starting to see is the economic impact of this on you know our state finances and what this is going to look like and the question i had for you is that you know here in california we feel heavily taxed because we're one of the few states that has sales tax property tax and income tax which is a and those are all high um and yet from like a school standpoint we're around 40th in the nation on a per capita basis uh which is really challenging because the cost it, 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 in an actual dollar amount that I think that's even lower because if you think of you know what you pay to a teacher here compared to a teacher in Mississippi or Arkansas like those dollars don't go yeah. as far it's even tougher on our teachers and our custodians and office managers what is from your perspective you know kind of at the root of that why why do we we've paid such high taxes and yet we chronically underfund schools here in California so there's a couple things, and there will be some who push back and say that there's a different metric that, and that maybe we fit within the 20, we're 25th uh, out of 50. Well, I, I fall into the boat that I just know this. Our local schools do face a chronic shortage in funding. Um, and there's a couple of issues that go along with that. The first is one that is politically sadly not going to be fixed, and that is how we spend it. I, I just have to tell you, we still try to fit everything, you know, innovative ideas have to fit within the infrastructure of our school systems now. And if we don't fit to the way we do things, it just doesn't get done. We don't see reform, again, in teacher tenure, in professional development reform, and in the kind of things that have been so successful in other states that over the last decade saw they were doing poorly in, in performance and education. Um, I still believe firmly in those changes. Um, I think it's politically difficult to do. I, I supported bills to change teacher tenure by like one year. <laughs> and uh, those always faced, you know, survival instinct um, opposition. But also on there is that a lot of what happens with schools is you're asking them to do more. Uh, we are also faced with the pension costs that are in our school system that our local school districts now bear much more of over the last several years. You know that having looked I at do. school budgets. Yep. And were you provided more money from the state to meet that a little bit from time to time, usually one-off payments, but not nearly enough. Yep. And, and that's still something that has not been fully addressed. Uh, and you also have a situation where the pie is not getting bigger. So uh, let's say for example, when we put money from the lottery into schools, well, that's a very small amount of the state school budget, but that was money. Uh, we, we were perfectly happy to not continue to increase more funding after that. Everybody believed that, you know, we're going to be fine if we just have the lottery take care of it. The last couple election cycles, we've had measures on the ballot, tax measures in 20, I think in 14 and 16, uh, 2012 and 2016, if I'm remembering my years correctly, like short-term tax increases to save our schools, never did it because we really weren't increasing the, um, the, 
the pie for schools. We were slicing it up differently, but we weren't making it bigger. Um, I think one of the number one things we can do right now is change the local control funding formula so that all the money goes into the base grant, which means everybody does better when you're gonna increase funding instead of just in the categorical and, and sub-grants. And we're getting into kind of wonky formulas here, but I think that's one of the most important things we can do for local districts in this area and um, make the pie bigger. <laughs> it's, it's, and I, the, the making the pie bigger part is because I think, you know, one, people see the headlines around um, schools get more funding, but when the uh, costs that are attached to the school district for the retirement uh, funding mm -hmm. are larger than the increase that your spendable dollars have actually gone down. And yeah, you're not really um, digging out of the hole when that happens. Right. And, uh, you know, one of, uh, I think there's always Can I say this, this though, Brian, I, I do want to emphasize this. I still believe you could put, if you, if we, I was queen and you were king for a day where you could just wave all the money that our, all of our school districts ever asked for and you gave it to them, we still might not see dramatically different outcomes if we don't change how we spend it with um, the innovation in the classroom, the quality of teaching in the classroom and the accountability for it, the quality of principals and administrators. And I think that's where we still ignore that. And that is something that deserves just equal time with money. And along those lines, one of the frustrations I had as a, a public uh, school board member was with charter schools. The fact that for a long time, they are operating under a set, separate set of goals. And so mm -hmm. even though we talked about you know, uh, charter schools, there's a benefit because they are more nimble and things like that. They weren't operating under the same rules and, and having the same guidelines for transparency. What are your thoughts around that? And I know we've seen some changes, but has it been enough? And it, should charter schools be held to the same standards as public schools? Well, I certainly think charter schools should be held accountable. Charter schools are public schools. They're just, I mean, they are part of our public school system, as, as you know, and public yeah. dollars do go into charter schools. That's sometimes a misconception that I, I try to remind people. And I, you're right, and I, I misspoke on it. Yep, yep. And you know, I am also a just ardent believer that when parents can make are empowered to make choices to match their individual child with the best teaching environment possible and put those dollars there, it's not only good for, yes, competition, but it's brilliant for that child and that family. So I'm a very strong supporter of choice, uh, but they absolutely should be held accountable. And I think, you know, my district saw not only great charter school systems, but ones that were poster childs for failure um, from lack of accountability and transparency. And there was legislation recently, the last two years, I believe, and I believe Senator Glazer was, might've been an author of it if I'm, Keeping, keeping track of things appropriately that I think made great uh, progress in the transparency and the authorization and oversight of charter schools. But I think if we, if we say, gee, they don't have to abide by the same rules, well, that might be what really makes, that might be what gives people more choice and is a good secret sauce. I will also add, they may not be a, uh, have to comply with the same rules as schools, but they still had to comply with some some oversight. For example, I used to see this all the time. Oh, charter schools, they don't have to abide by the same disclosure and conflict of interest rules because they're governed under uh, corporations code instead of education code. Well, I'm like, there's a corporations 
code conflict of interest provision that did apply to them. So it wasn't like a you know, free for all Lord of the flies uh, in terms of compliance. So I'm someone who does firmly believe as a parent uh, that it's how terrific it is to be able to pick the educational opportunity that matches best with your child and have the ability to get them there. Um, but accountability is, is something anywhere your dollars are spent it has to be um, enforced rigorously. There's more work to do in that area. What I hope won't happen is, you know, I think the last few years there was a governor and that was Governor Brown who was a little more friendly or balanced in his approach to charter schools. I think that's changed over the last two years and we'll see what happens with the Biden administration. Yeah, I think it was interesting that Jerry Brown in, when he was mayor of Oakland, he, he was a very vocal proponent of charter schools. And as kind of a last topic, um, in, in terms of the role of government, there's, you know, you often hear from Republicans, the idea of smaller government. Um, but let me ask you something that, um, you know, I think going back to President Eisenhower, who built the, the highways and, you know, investment there, I, I think there's some certain core things. And one of them that's close to my heart is around internet access. And I think we are massively seeing the shortfalls. We're seeing there it are. in my district. We're seeing it throughout um, California. And, you know, I, I've actually said for a number of years, instead of us building, uh, investing over $100 billion in high-speed rail um, to connect our state, that if we spent anything close to that amount of money to instead digitally connect our state, is that an appropriate role for government? Because I, I don't think that um, private enterprise is alone going to do that. And I think that that is the type of thing there where there is a role for for uh, the government. What are your thoughts on that? Well, sure. I mean, I, you're absolutely right about the inequality in access to high-speed internet is, um, even, even in my community in Dublin, I'm in Tri-Valley, which is called the Innovation Valley. <laughs> and we have major centers here of, of tech companies and, and families who probably earn a living in the technology in industry. And it's still a challenge even in this area. But there's some parts of the state uh, that when I went to the legislature, I, I will confess, I didn't realize just how bad it was for some parts of our state where they don't have that type of access. So um, there are many private initiatives and nonprofit organizations that are focused on it. As in terms of the role of the government, it is where, where can you partner with the private sector? Where do you have to be the ones who lead and not just partner, but you have to lead and take it on. And then when do you hand it over? Um, when does it become more self-sustaining and, and, um, and, and able to support itself? I also add this, you always have to think about what level of government. It's not always federal in the, the highest top level. Actually, it's a core Republican principle that I still firmly believe in, the concept of federalism, which is devolve things as much as possible to local decision-making. You're much more nimble and people are much more in tune with what their community needs. You can't do that with internet access. It can't be right. something that the, a small town up in Northeastern California can do all on its own. Um, but you wanna find ways in which, I think that's appropriate role of government, that type of basic infrastructure where you're either partnering or you're having to take the lead role, but eventually is it something that you turn over to make it more self-sustaining. Um, and, and I also, I would add this, I hope we can get past it because the inequality that students are dealing with now for not even who can be in the classroom and continue learning and who can't is aggravating it so badly in a state that really has a, 
a gap that we should do better at. I mean, that sounds a little bit uh, Pollyanna, but I hope they will, we can tackle it. I, I think we have to. Um, and as a final question, you're, you're well decorated for the holidays there behind you. Um, <laughs> and so there you go. And, uh, you know, there's been so, so much negativity and so many challenging things in 2020. Let me ask you, what, what are you looking forward to in 2021? Well, first and foremost, I'm looking forward to vaccination for people who are total strangers to me, who I'll never meet, but whose life might be more, uh, they might be alive and their family might be together and economically able to enjoy life because of the vaccine. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And hopefully a resumption of life, it's gonna take, uh, getting back to normal, it's gonna take a lot of time. It's not something that's gonna happen overnight. So there's no question I'm looking forward to seeing um, the risk to life reduced because of the vaccine. Uh, my kids graduate high school in, uh, in the coming year. Um, I'm looking forward to work on the FPPC. And uh, just since this is a political conversation, I was looking forward to a new administration, um, a change from where we've been for the last four years. And I, I hope that the discussion of compromise and unity and more attempts at bipartisanship really will happen because um, we've been starved for that for too long. And there's too many leaders who don't have a practice in it anymore. Uh, they're just entirely too ideological. And I, I'm looking forward with hope that that will be a good development in 2021. I will, I, I will share many of those wishes. So Catherine, thank you so much. But it's been such a pleasure, pleasure and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I'm delighted. I, I appreciate the outreach and I'm wishing you and everybody who listens to this uh, health and safety for everyone in their lives and all the best in 2021. I was on a, a call recently where they said, uh, wishing you all the fun in 21. <laughs> we'll take it. Thank you so Good much. Good to see you. Take care. Best wishes. Bye. Thank you.